For a complete version of NJ.com's special investigation, The Last Good Night, including resources about bed sharing for new parents, visit bedsharing.nj.com. The Last Good Night. One mom risked everything when her baby slept next to her and other family members. She paid the ultimate price three times. Story written by Susan K. Livio. Voiceover by Natalie Patterson. Story editing by Christopher Baxter. Production by Andrew Zuckerman. Chapter 1. How the Unthinkable Came to Pass. The one-room apartment in Newark reeked of garbage and dirty diapers. Half-eaten food rotted on the floor, surrounded by empty cigarette packs, dirty clothes, and rat feces. Investigators summed up the scene in a single word, deplorable. And there, in the middle of it all, lay three-and-a-half-month-old Jalon Josiah Jojo Lemons on a bare, full-size mattress, soaked in old stains. His father, Hakeem Lemons, told police that on August 11, 2015, he had smoked marijuana and watched his three kids while Jojo's mother, Mikiel Jordan, went out for drinks. When she returned later that night, Lemons said all five of them slept on the mattress. The next morning, Lemons awoke to blood and Jojo not breathing. Jordan frantically tried to revive him, but Jojo was pronounced dead an hour later at University Hospital in Newark. Lemons told investigators it was a mistake to lay Jojo with them on the mattress. Jordan had been warned of the danger. Jojo wasn't her first baby to die sharing a bed. He was her third. We did not have a bed for him. We should have had a bed for him, Jordan said in an emotional interview. Nobody would expect this to happen again, especially three times. What did I do with my life? A two-year NJ Advance Media investigation uncovered how a series of unthinkable tragedies with Jordan's children came to pass. The probe also revealed how the State Child Welfare Agency failed to act on a potentially life-saving call to its child abuse hotline after JoJo's birth. In response to the findings, the head of A Better Childhood, the National Advocacy Group, locked in a 14-year battle to reform the agency, said the state's handling of the abuse hotline should come under renewed scrutiny. The hotline is absolutely critical to the lives of children, the group's executive director, Marsha Robinson-Lowry, said. An agency can get complacent. In Jordan's case, she is among a handful, at most, of parents across the U.S. to lose three children in separate yet similarly shocking accidents. Though she disputes portions of the police account of JoJo's death, she nonetheless says his story and the stories of her other children should serve as a cautionary tale to any parent considering sharing a bed with their baby. Nobody don't want to go through this. Like, like um, mothers tell me all the time, like, oh, I still, um, I sleep in bed with my baby every night. My baby, oh, I let my baby on top of me. If I just told you, you know, and you, you heard my story, like, like, and that hurts, and I'll go hurt like later, like, oh God, and I'm worrying about the baby, like, oh, I hope their baby's okay, like, you know, get a crib. If you don't have a crib, get a car seat, don't put the car seat in the bed, don't put them near nobody, don't lay with your baby, don't fall asleep with your baby, don't lay a baby on top of you. Just, just nobody don't want to lose a child, and to lose three is like, better learn from my mistakes.
In 2004, Jordan said she found her nine-day-old daughter, Zanya, dead an hour after laying the baby in the same bed with her husband and one-year-old daughter. The medical examiner cited sudden infant death syndrome as the cause of death. Jordan says authorities did not mention sharing the bed with her baby as a contributing factor. Five years later, eight-week-old Hakeem Lemons Jr., who Jordan says was misidentified in police and state records as Al-Hakeem, slept on one of two couches pushed together with his mother, father, and toddler cousin, police records show. His parents awoke to find Hakeem Jr. face down in a pillow and unresponsive, with the cousin on top of him, records said. The state child welfare agency temporarily took Jordan's other children, but eventually returned them, finding the death was simply a tragic accident. After Hakeem Jr. died, a caseworker specifically warned Jordan against bed-sharing, police records show. Perhaps the most heart-wrenching twist in the story came two days after JoJo was born, when a worker from Beth Israel Medical Center in Newark called New Jersey's child abuse hotline with a warning about a child in danger, according to two sources with knowledge of the case. The sources, who requested anonymity because they were not allowed to share confidential information, said the caller relayed that Jordan had revealed that one of her babies had suffocated while sharing a bed. The caller warned that JoJo, too, may be at risk. But rather than dispatch caseworkers and ensure JoJo's home and sleeping environment were safe, the Child Welfare Agency, the Division of Child Protection and Permanency, filed a report that did not recommend any follow-up. No one from the state contacted or visited the family, Jordan said. No one acted on what could have been a life-saving phone call. JoJo died 103 days later. Unlike Jordan and Lemons, who pleaded guilty to child endangerment last September in criminal court, state authorities have declined to acknowledge any responsibility for JoJo. When it came time to file an internal report on his death, child welfare investigators omitted any mention of the hospital's hotline call, the sources said. Those same investigators determined neither abuse nor neglect played any role in JoJo's death a stark contrast to the findings of the Essex County Prosecutor's Office, which arrested the parents within 24 hours and later obtained indictments for reckless manslaughter and child endangerment. Was it a cover-up? State officials have declined requests for interviews. Ernest Landante, a spokesperson for the Division of Child Protection and Permanency, confirmed that an investigation found that the death was not caused by abuse or neglect. He otherwise declined comment on the case. By not attributing the baby's death to abuse or neglect, the division did not have to disclose how JoJo died. As a result, the agency did not face questions about how it responded to a family in crisis numerous times over the course of 11 years. And it did not add fuel to criticisms about its past failures and complicate its ongoing effort to end federal court supervision. No bad news ever, said Cecilia Zalkind, a close observer of the child welfare system for more than 25 years, when asked to explain how the agency has operated under Governor Chris Christie. The hospital's call to the hotline should have raised a red flag, she said. In my mind, the hospital calling and saying another child had died, to me, it should have triggered something more. Chapter 2 
dealing with a fatal disconnect. Infant deaths cause a uniquely crushing sense of loss, particularly when preventable. That's why doctors have crusaded against the practice of parents sharing a bed with a baby. Every year, about 3,500 infants in the U.S. die while sleeping, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. About 1,000 of those cases involve bed sharing, also known as co-sleeping. Yet a surprising number of parents don't receive the warnings, ignore them, or believe they are misguided. Maybe they have slept with babies without a problem. Maybe they know parents who did, or maybe they don't have the means to buy a crib and create a safe place to sleep. Whether they occasionally curl up in bed while breastfeeding or purposely create a family bed, many insist bed sharing can be safe. Doctors warn just one mistake can cost a family everything. Since 2000, the American Academy of Pediatrics has advised pediatricians and hospitals to educate parents about rollovers and discourage bed sharing. While not every instance will be fatal, the Academy says the cost of just one mistake is far too high, and it can happen fast. Medical examiners estimate a baby with a blocked airway can suffocate in less than a minute. The disconnect between parents' actions and doctors' recommendations is at the heart of a passionate and decades-old debate, one that still stirs visceral reactions among those who feel either ridiculed for bed-sharing or astonished any parent would do it. Lost in the argument remains a cold reality. Babies continue to die this way at an alarming rate. Every year, about 25 to 30 babies die in New Jersey while sharing a bed. These tragedies often are born from complicated circumstances. Poverty, drug and alcohol abuse, a desire to keep a baby close. Jennifer Schindel, an international pediatric sleep consultant, said, in many cases, parents are simply exhausted and bed sharing is easy. I have talked to families who have lost their little ones, and they did not smoke or drink, Shindell said. They were both just tired. New Jersey's Child Fatality and Near Fatality Review Board repeatedly has sounded an alarm about bed-sharing deaths and urged hospitals to adopt standardized education for parents. It also has criticized state medical examiners for performing shoddy investigations into infant deaths. There's no standard way to report bed sharing on autopsies or as part of a cause of death, making it impossible to know exactly how many babies die from it each year. Landante, the state spokesman, defended the state's work, saying its child welfare caseworkers are trained to protect babies and educate parents about safe sleep. The SID Center of New Jersey has held 40 safe sleep training sessions for 1,700 caseworkers since 2010, he said. During the last fiscal year, the state gave out 2,400 cribs to families with inadequate sleeping areas for their babies, Landante said. That was in addition to 5,500 sleep sacks, or wearable blankets, and 1,000 pack-and-plays, or play areas, distributed from 2014 to 2016, he said. The department also distributes baby boxes, or crib-sized laminated boxes, that can be used as a safe sleeping space. Since January, when the State Child Fatality and Near Fatality Review Board set a goal of making the boxes available statewide, 
25,000 have been delivered. Most often, as with Jordan's first two children, bed-sharing deaths are viewed as accidents, but in a fraction of cases, they are viewed as crimes. Last year, a two-month-old boy in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, suffocated while sleeping with his mother, who awaits trial on criminal homicide and involuntary manslaughter charges. The same woman was arrested five years earlier for the death of a two-month-old boy who was allowed to sleep on a couch while the mother texted for hours with friends. In 2013, a Cleveland grandmother served six months in Ohio State Prison for the death of her one-month-old granddaughter, who suffocated while the two shared a bed. And in December, Superior Court Judge Ronald Wiggler was left to decide Mikiel Jordan's fate, 16 months after JoJo died. What makes this case highly unusual is that, as I think was Mr. Plant indicated, that first of all, this is a tragedy. I mean, it's it, it, first and foremost for you. Um, and I don't presume for a second to be able to honestly put myself in your position. It, it's terrible. But um, the fact that this is not the first child you've lost. Um, it, it's the third child you've lost. Unfortunately, going back to 2004, uh, your infant daughter, let's refer to as ZL, um, she died in a similar manner while in bed uh, with you. And then five years later, in 2009, your your infant son also died in a somewhat similar fashion from suffocation from uh, being on a couch where uh, his two-year-old cousin was on top of him. Um, I guess what's, what's very disturbing to me is how this could have happened a third time. Jordan, 32, was sentenced to four years of probation, 115 hours of community service, and parenting classes after spending 54 days in county jail. JoJo's father, 31-year-old Hakeem Lemons, is expected to be sentenced soon, the prosecutor's office said. Chapter 3, Eight Kids by the Age of 30. Mickey L. Jordan is the oldest of three siblings, born August 27, 1985, in Charleston, South Carolina. She grew up in Burlington County after the family moved to New Jersey. Jordan was 17 when she had her first child, a girl, during her senior year of high school. She said her teachers dropped off homework so she could keep up with the rest of the class, and she graduated on time from Rancocas Valley Regional High School in Mount Holly in 2003. She would have eight children before her 30th birthday. I never thought I was going to have this many kids, Jordan said in the interview. I had my first daughter in my last year of high school with her father. He helped me and I graduated with my baby. A composed, soft-spoken woman who looks younger than her 32 years, Jordan received a certificate as a medical assistant from Drake College of Business in 2013. She went on to work as a medical assistant and a dental assistant in the Newark area and is currently looking for a job. She married her baby's father, Calvin Jordan, and they had two more children. 
They remain legally married but are no longer together, Mikiel said. Her five other children were fathered by lemons. Chapter 4. Her color. She was blue. Zanya Angel Jordan was born June 10, 2004. She lived nine days. On June 19th, Mikiel laid Zanya, her second child, on the same bed as her husband and their first child, police records show. Jordan said she'd slept on the couch because she was sick. At 5 a.m., she jolted awake, realizing the baby had not cried to be fed. I went in and looked at her. And her color? She was blue, Jordan said. In the baby's autopsy records obtained by NJ Advanced Media, the Northern Regional Medical Examiner's Office determined Zanya succumbed to sudden unexplained death, a term used interchangeably with sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. An opportunity to warn Jordan of repeating her mistake was missed. They said it was SIDS, and I said, What's SIDS? Jordan said. They said sudden infant death syndrome. They said there was no cause of death. In general, medical examiners or coroners can conclude a baby has died from SIDS only after other explanations have been ruled out, said Ernest Leva, a top pediatrician at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and the former vice chairman of the state's Child Fatality Board. He said he can recall numerous instances in which medical examiners missed important clues in cases that ultimately were ruled as SIDS. Multiple times we called the ME on the carpet when we thought they had made errors, Leva said, not referring to Zanya's case specifically. These people have no idea what they are talking about. It's a terrible, chaotic situation that is not in the best interest of children. Sources said the State Child Welfare Agency opened a case after Zanya's death, but closed it six months later, taking no additional action. Five years later, the unthinkable would happen again. Chapter 5. Understanding the SIDS Scapegoat In the 1980s, SIDS was frightening, not just because babies were dying, but also because doctors could find no discernible cause. Then, in 1992, a breakthrough in Europe and Australia demystified the problem. Physicians noted fewer infants died when put to sleep on their backs. Researchers can't explain why this worked so well, but suspect it keeps a baby's airway clear and prevents overheating. Two years later, the American Academy of Pediatrics launched a successful campaign called Back to Sleep, succinctly instructing parents how to put their babies to bed. And it worked. The SIDS rate dropped by more than half, research shows. But another trend emerged. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention developed guidelines in 1996 for law enforcement and medical examiners to assess a baby's sleeping environment, and cases once labeled as SIDS were being ruled as suffocation. Medical examiners have a tough time proving a baby suffocated based only on an autopsy, said Teresa Covington, director of the National Center for the Review and Prevention of Child Deaths. That makes clues from the scene vital to finding the truth, Covington said. And the more investigators gathered information, the more medical examiners began to see dangers, such as a crib cluttered with plush blankets and toys, or, equally troubling, parents who routinely slept with their babies. 
As a result, as the number of SIDS cases fell, the rate of deaths classified as accidental suffocations more than quadrupled, from 3.1 deaths per 100,000 live births in 1992 to 12.5 per 100,000 babies in 2004, according to a National Institutes of Health study. But as the science behind safe sleeping improved, the message about bed sharing fell flat. From 1993 to 2010, the percent of parents who said they bed shared more than doubled to 13.5, up from 6%, according to a 2013 study published in the journal Pediatrics. In New Jersey, unsafe sleep was cited in the deaths of 57 children less than one year old in 2014, including 33 who shared a bed or couch, according to the latest report by the State Child Fatality and Near Fatality Review Board. The trend was similar in 2013 when 56 babies died in unsafe environments, including 27 sharing a bed or couch. It's so rare anymore to have a SIDS that occurs in a pristine environment, a baby sleeping on her back with no one else in a crib, Covington said. Still, there's no uniform way nationally to label infant deaths that result from unsafe sleeping, and coroners and medical examiners are free to label them however they want, said James Reib, senior deputy medical examiner of the Los Angeles County Department of the Coroner. As a result, the problem hides in plain sight, Reib said. If you had a uniform name, you could keep more accurate statistics and find out if it is actually going up or down. You could get more research funding, he said. All this confusion about terminology is a big obstacle for doctors, journalists, and the public. Chapter 6. The First Warning Hakeem Lemons Jr. was born July 7, 2009. He lived 55 days. That summer was a scorcher. Jordan said that on August 31, 2009, the night of his death, there were a lot of people in her one-bedroom apartment in Newark, so she brought a window air conditioner into the living room. She did not bring the baby's crib into the room, which I wish we did, she said. According to police, Hakeem Jr. was put on two couches that were pushed together. He was joined by his mother, his father, and his toddler cousin. Jordan maintains the couches were separated and that she and her boyfriend slept away from the baby. She also said the cousin, who was about two years old, wasn't initially sleeping in the living room, but must have wandered in during the night. When Hakeem Jr.'s father, Lemons, awoke, he found his son face down in a pillow, police said. The baby's cousin was on top of him. It's not what people think, Jordan said. My son was rolled on, the second one, but I never put him there. I never put the baby there, but I was blamed for that. Stunned by a second death, Jordan said she lost it. It makes me feel like if I had a bed, if I had extra air conditioners, she said, her voice trailing off. In the back of my mind, I say I wish I had this or that. Then this would not have happened. The Child Welfare Agency placed Jordan's two other children, a son and daughter, she had with Jordan, with her grandmother for five months. A medical examiner ruled Hakeem Jr. died from suffocation, and the state closed its case and took no other action, sources said. Felix Osimwegi, a state caseworker, recalled he personally counseled Mikiel Jordan concerning the extreme risk associated 
with sleeping practices of placing infant children in bed with adults, according to records from the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. Jordan said she had no recollection of the conversation. It wouldn't be Asamwegi's last visit to her home. Chapter 7, A Passionate and Decades-Old Debate I can do it right. It won't happen to me. Lots of people do it safely. Those are the sentiments medical professionals such as Anthony D'Urso, the supervising psychologist at Hackensack University Medical Center's Audrey Hepburn Children's House, say they have battled for years. As a result, progress eliminating preventable infant deaths has been frustratingly slow. Last fall, the American Academy of Pediatrics updated its warning about bed sharing, emphasizing the serious risks, but it also extended a small but significant olive branch in the heated debate, acknowledging for the first time that parents often fall asleep with babies while feeding them. If the parent falls asleep while feeding the infant in bed, the infant should be placed back on a separate sleep service as soon as the parent awakens, the Academy wrote. The Academy recommends parents sleep in the same room, but not the same bed, for at least the first six months, and ideally for the first year. Room sharing decreases the risk of SIDS by as much as 50 percent, the guidance said. Still, D'Urso said most parents are nodding their heads and doing what they want to do. Many mothers who sleep with infants said they initially listened to their pediatricians but found they could nurse without disrupting their baby's sleep in the same bed. They felt more attuned to breathing and stirrings and more empowered to respond if something seemed off. What's more, bonding intensified, they said. Jermaine Alcaro of Middletown, a mother of two sons and co-leader of the Monmouth County chapter of the Holistic Moms Network, said she was counseled on how to bed share. She and her husband covered the mattress with a fitted sheet and a thin blanket, got rid of pillows, duvets, and other plush bedding, and used a guardrail or pillows on the floor around the mattress. By taking the baby into bed, Alcaro, 34, said she nursed on demand, slightly waking up and going back to sleep, rather than having to get up, remove the child from the bassinet, crying, and releasing stress hormones. Then you're both awake and trying to calm each other down, she said. Alcaro's husband, fearing he would crush the baby, slept in another room or on the far side of the bed until about the fifth or sixth month, when babies develop the strength in their necks and learn how to roll over, she said. Proponents also say there are tools to make bed sharing safer. Parents can buy sidecar bassinets that tie to the side of an adult bed or plastic inserts that place a barrier between parent and child in the same bed, said Heather Natoli of Freehold, a mother of four, a licensed homeopathic advisor, and a Moms Network member. Natoli said she tried the co-sleeper bassinet with her first child but didn't like it. When her daughter arrived, Natoli said she did not hesitate to bring the child into bed. I think um, the benefits of co-sleeping would definitely be that the children's breathing is changed drastically when co-sleeping went together with a parent. And there's so many cues that you can pick up on with children. Um, I feel like as a mother, especially, you're constantly listening for their breathing and um, them tossing and turning and when they're not you know, feeling okay. And you can't hear any of that when they're in another room. So you just kind of always feel like you're on alert and 
um, for myself. I felt like I had to get up and check on them constantly and I just wasn't able to sleep. I'm comfortable, I trust myself, and I know that I'm going to wake up when I hear them fussing and I, I'm comfortable enough that I can feel them if they're getting warm or if they need anything. And when I have them, in the, even in the sidecar crib a little bit farther away, I notice that I'm not able to sleep as restfully because I'm, I need that comfort. Parents who sleep with their children or ask for advice on how to do it safely usually meet strong resistance from their pediatricians. Natoli said she changed doctors in part after butting heads over sleeping philosophies. But doctors insist that regardless of success stories, bed sharing is too risky. Of particular concern are low-income families that may not have enough money or space for separate beds, medical and health experts say. Infant suffocation rates are more than three times higher among black families and more than two times higher among Hispanic families who are both disproportionately low-income, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Covington said the Children's National Medical Center conducted a focus group with black families in Washington, D.C. a decade ago about infant sleeping habits. African-American moms said they made a choice to sleep with their babies because they thought they were safer with them, rather than alone in a room where they could have had problems with vermin or with violence happening in the streets, Covington said. They made a conscious choice, she said. I run the National Center for Fatality Review and Prevention, and that is a national resource center to support states and communities in the reviews of their infant and child deaths. For us at our center, we promote the AAP recommendations, and we're just, we feel, those are all evidence-based, so we're comfortable with it. The simple ones are, you know, alone, sleeping alone, which is problematic for families to hear because nobody wants their babies to be alone. But that's, the, when you're sleeping, you're supposed to be sleeping alone without anybody else in your sleep environment, on your back, in a crib, um, which would include a portable crib, in a smoke-free environment, um, without blankets or other stuff in the crib with you, you're really supposed to be in a sleep sack or something that can't get, can't cover your um, face. You're really trying to, you're trying to put the baby in anything that keeps its face and its nose and its mouth free so it can breathe. I always say I'd like to be attached to my child for the span of their entire life rather than three or four months while they're infants. I really believe that. And families who lose their babies, they don't get to be attached when their kids are 18, you know? I just feel really strongly about it. Chapter 8, Little Jojo. Jalon Josiah, Jojo Lemons, was born April 29, 2015. He lived 105 days. The most fateful day of his short life was May 1st, when a worker at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center, where he was born, called the State Child Abuse Hotline to report a concern. The worker said Jordan had disclosed one of her babies had died from suffocation, and she had a history with the Child Welfare Agency, according to two sources familiar with the call who were not allowed to discuss it. She did not mention Zanya, whose death was classified as SIDS. The hotline employee typed the information into the computer system, the sources said, but instead of sending it to an intake worker to check on the family, the employee labeled it as an information and referral report and took no further action. 
A supervisor approved the decision, the sources said. Marsha Robinson-Lowry, the executive director for A Better Childhood, the plaintiff in the lawsuit that led to the ongoing federal court oversight of the state child welfare agency, said she was unaware of JoJo's case before NJ Advance Media approached her about it. But she said the hotline's handling of the call from the hospital doesn't make sense for several reasons. A hospital is a mandated reporter of child abuse and neglect, obligated under state law to notify the state when there is a suspicion of child maltreatment, Lowry said. All calls from mandated reporters should be taken seriously and warrant some investigation, Lowry said. I didn't think it was ever okay to ignore a mandated reporter. She added that classifying the call as an information and referral also raised questions because that usually means a caller was looking for information, such as how to apply for Social Security benefits. The real question is why did the call get screened out, Lowry said. It was screened out before there was an investigation. Before heading home with her baby, Jordan had been warned of potential bed-sharing dangers, according to records from the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. She signed a discharge document that read, in part, Do not put your infant to sleep in your bed, records show. Jordan said she doesn't recall the written bed-sharing warning or everything she and the nurses discussed. She was worried about Jojo, who was born six weeks early. The family stayed with Catherine Livingston, Jordan's grandmother, for about a month, she said. But Livingston did not approve of the arrangement because Jordan and Lemons were not married. So she and Lemons moved into a one-room, garage-level apartment on South 11th Street in Newark. They share the apartment with his mother. Jordan's sister, Malika Morris, said the baby appeared to be thriving. Here she is. He was really huge. <laughs> like, he was fat. Like, a lot of people call him fat man. Um, but he was happy, like, as long as you weren't too noisy. He was always laughing, always playing. His siblings adored him. Like, he was just such a, a lovable little round baby. But Jordan said she and Lemons were barely scraping by financially. They had left JoJo's crib at Livingston's house, intending to return and pick it up. I just tried the best I can to keep the child all the way over on this side of the bed, Jordan said in the interview, starting to cry. I always made sure he was in his bouncer inside the bed. The morning JoJo was found dead, the state caseworker from Hakeem Lemons Jr.'s death, Asimwegi and another, Daniel Howell, went to the family's home. Upon observing the filth and lack of food records show, they removed the three remaining children. Two others were living with Calvin Jordan. For her part, Jordan disputes portions of the official police account of how JoJo died, saying she did not put the baby in bed that night. She never saw him, and she had slept on the floor but she ultimately accepted some responsibility when she pleaded guilty to child endangerment. Here's Jordan and Malika on the death of JoJo. It's not what people think. Like, it's this time, I never put a baby in a bed. I was blamed for that, you know? I never did that, but we don't know who put him in the bed still because there was a lot of people in the house. But when we woke up, he was in the bouncer inside the bed, and the babies was inside the bed with the bouncer. I was never even in the bed. I was on the floor. Essentially, he stopped breathing. There was no, like, he didn't drown, no one choked him, no one beat him. If you you saw him in the hospital, he looked like he was sleeping. So, literally, it said, 
undetermined semicolon co-sleeping. I went out, that's the first time I like, I never ever go out. I went out that night and I came back. He wasn't downstairs. I didn't see my son that whole night until when I was woke up that morning and he was telling me that, you know, he was not breathing. I never seen my baby that night. He wasn't even downstairs. Then all of a sudden he's downstairs. So we got the phone call and like, everyone had to take maybe like five minutes to sort of kind of regroup. And we were like, um, driving to Newark and my mother, we were driving separately and my mother called and she's like, well, mommy said that they took the baby to UMZ&J, so maybe they're still working on him, maybe he's not dead. And I'm like, uh, this has happened before. UMZ&J is where they always take the traumatized dead babies. He's gone. I never thought this would ever happen again. Like this, nobody would expect this to happen, especially three times. Like that's, that's I'm like, what did I do in life? Like I'm blaming myself, I'm blaming God, you know? And then main thing is I need God, so I can't blame him. Asimwegi did not return a call for comment. The Northern Regional Medical Examiner's Office issued a preliminary autopsy saying the baby died from accidental suffocation, according to county prosecutor records. That was later changed to undetermined co-sleeping. Asphyxia could not be ruled out, also because the mother had two of her own prior children die, the report said. On August 13, 2015, the day after Jojo died, an arrest warrant was issued for his parents. Jordan spent 54 days in county jail before posting bail. Prior to JoJo's death, Jordan had never had a brush with the law. While the prosecutor's office took swift action, the state child welfare agency took 10 months to complete its inquiry, and it came to a much different conclusion. The agency determined abuse and neglect were not established as the cause of JoJo's death, according to sources familiar with the review. Under agency rules, the state is not obligated to release any details unless a child has conclusively died from abuse or neglect. It's unusual for a criminal case to proceed while a child welfare investigation finds no wrongdoing, said Michael Freeman, president of the National District Attorneys Association and the district attorney in Hennepin County, Minnesota. Freeman said civil cases have a lower standard of proof than criminal ones, so if a criminal case can be made, Usually, a civil one can be too. If parents are found criminally liable for abuse and neglect of children, that is a very telling thing in the civil court, and that is all that is needed to terminate the parents' rights, he said. The Child's Welfare Agency's conclusion means no one was held publicly accountable for an obvious mistake by the hotline, said Zalkind, the longtime observer of the Child Welfare Agency. There is this attitude within the department that successfully ending the court oversight depends on keeping the caseload down, Zalkine said, adding that JoJo's death should give the department a reason to review the hotline's operations and tips involving babies, given the broader issue of how big a problem co-sleeping is. Internally, at least, the agency appears to have acknowledged the problem. In August 2016, after repeated inquiries by NJ Advance Media about JoJo's case, hotline administrator Robin Giles issued a memo instructing employees how to handle calls from hospitals about a mother who has given birth and whose family has had a prior child fatality. According to the memo, a copy of which was obtained by NJ Advance Media, the calls must result in an investigation or assessment of the parent's current ability to provide care to their child 
and to determine if there are any safety or welfare concerns for the newborn. Jordan said she had no idea the hospital had contacted the child abuse hotline about JoJo. Had the Child Welfare Division sent investigators to the apartment, Jordan said, they would have seen a family struggling. But she said she didn't call herself, having been monitored by the agency off and on for more than a decade. Since JoJo's death, Jordan said she has been in regular therapy for depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress. They said I never dealt with it, she said. I tried to blank it out. Morris, Jordan's sister, doubted an intervention would have saved JoJo, noting the autopsy said the cause of death was undetermined co-sleeping. To her, it left open the possibility of a medical problem the medical examiner was unable to detect. Instead, Morris praised overworked caseworkers for the help they since have provided her family. As painful as it is losing her nephew, she said, it must have been God's will. If he was going to go, he was going to go, Morris said. Chapter 9. Are they accidents or crimes? From 2005 to 2014, 304 babies in New Jersey died while bed-sharing, according to state documents. Every death could have been avoided, public health officials agree. Think about it from our perspective. We knew how we truly could prevent 25 infant deaths a year, on average, said to Urso, chairman of the State Child Fatality and Near Fatality Review Board, from its inception until 2015. This is a simple one. Don't sleep with your infant. But are these deaths a crime? The answer is usually no, said Sean Dalton, a top prosecutor for the past nine years and a member of the review board. By definition, bed-sharing deaths are considered accidents unless investigators or a medical examiner find evidence or egregious circumstances to suggest otherwise. If it is determined the child has died from suffocation, that is different from an intentional action on the part of someone, Dalton said. Prosecutors have wide discretion in choosing the fraction of cases they do send to a grand jury for indictment, and the family's history usually factors in that decision, Dalton said. In JoJo's case, for example, records show the Essex County Prosecutor's Office was swayed by the fact Jordan had lost two other children under similar circumstances. There are also factors that dissuade prosecutors from pursuing bed-sharing cases. For one, suffocation is difficult to prove forensically because it leaves behind few, if any, anatomical clues, and it usually happens when people are asleep and unaware of what happened. Also, parents who have lost children make for sympathetic defendants in court, and in considering punishment, judges often view the fallout from a child's death as enough of a deterrent to prevent a parent from bed-sharing again, resulting in little or no imprisonment. The best way to deter bed-sharing is comprehensive parent education and improving the awareness of medical examiners' offices so facts don't die along with the child, DeUrso said. The Fatality Board has repeatedly urged the Attorney General's office to create a centralized and better-trained state medical examiner's office with more expertise in pediatric cases. I don't want any child to die from abuse or neglect and for the medical examiner not to make that diagnosis, said Catherine McCanns, the Child Fatality Board's current chairwoman and an emergency room pediatrician at Cooper University Hospital in Camden. 
it prevents us from providing intervention for the remaining or future children. Peter Asseltine, a spokesman for the Attorney General's Office, which oversees the Office of the State Medical Examiner, said there are two pediatric pathologists they refer cases to as needed. Asseltine declined to address specific criticisms of the medical examiner system. For a decade, the Child Fatality Board has urged birthing hospitals to join the National Safe Sleep Hospital Certification Program, developed by Cribs for Kids, a Pittsburgh nonprofit. The program trains hospital staff and parents of newborns on safe sleeping practices. But only three of the 51 birthing hospitals in New Jersey are certified by that program. Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, Raritan Bay Medical Center in Perth Amboy, and Atlanticare Regional Medical Center in Galloway, according to Cribs for Kids. Other hospitals have their own programs, but the patchwork approach causes mixed messages. The only way to change that is to include a coordinated statewide strategy as part of hospital inspection and accreditation, said Robert Hagee, director of the SID Center of New Jersey and vice chairman of the pediatrics department at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. The SID Center has trained thousands of doctors and nurses in its 28-year history, resulting in New Jersey having one of the lowest sudden unexplained death rates from 2013 to 2015, Hagee said. In January, New Jersey took a big step to discourage parents from bed sharing when it became the first state to distribute baby boxes, laminated cardboard boxes with tiny mattresses and fitted sheets. To date, 25,000 boxes have been given out to parents who watch a video on the manufacturer Baby Box University's website, according to the company. McCanns predicts this will reduce unexplained infant death cases. But national child safety experts, including the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, have raised flags, saying there is no independent research showing the boxes work or are even safe. Baby Box University is collaborating with the commission to develop safety design standards. Amanda DeSaro, 28, of Staten Island, said education makes a difference. She said she was forced to view a really upsetting 15-minute video in the recovery room hours after delivering her son. But message received. The times she took her inconsolable baby to bed, she never shut her eyes. I was too worried I was going to roll over on him, she said. Chapter 10. He looked like he was asleep. Three and a half months after Jojo was born and just two blocks away from the hospital where he was delivered, quietly weeping mourners gathered at the Canaan Baptist Church in Newark. There were great expectations, great hope for Brother Jojo, said Pastor Michael Fisher, a family confidant who presided over all three funerals for Jordan's children. When I consider this young life having not the responsibility of his actions, too young to even come into account of being one that needs to be facing judgment, I declare to you God picked one of his flowers just the other day and said, Come on home, Fisher said. Jojo now lies in a small wooden coffin in an unmarked grave in Evergreen Cemetery in Hillside, where Zanya Jordan and Hakeem Lemons Jr. also are buried. Moments after the service, Jordan's grandmother came to her defense. She loves her children, Catherine Livingston said. What happened happened, but she did not kill the baby. They are treating them like murderers. 
The parents last saw their infant son at University Hospital in Newark after he was pronounced dead, according to Jordan's sister, Morris. She said relatives filed in and out of the room to say goodbye to the baby. Jordan cradled Jojo and clutched him to her chest, Morris said. He looked like he was asleep. You've been listening to The Last Good Night, an NJ.com special investigation. The story was written by Susan K. Livio. Voiceover by Natalie Patterson. Story editing by Christopher Baxter. Production by Andrew Zuckerman. For a complete version of the investigation, including resources for parents on bed sharing, visit bedsharing.nj.com.